Should the U.S. intervene in Syria? Today, Thursday, May 2nd, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The U.S. is evaluating whether to arm the rebels in Syria. One big factor U.S. officials are weighing is this. If chemical weapons were used in Syria, who did it? This opposition activist claims only the regime would have the means. Chemical weapons can't just be sprinkled around like you're sprinkling um, you know, candy frosting on, on, on a cake or something. It, 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 you need sophisticated equipment to do that. And later, an American who ventured into North Korea is sentenced to 15 years of hard labor. This former U.S. diplomat isn't surprised. People need to understand that, in effect, they're like crossing Times Square at rush hour with a blindfold on when they go to North Korea. This is a place where this can happen. Plus a taste of choco pie diplomacy. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You may care about the situation in Syria, but a new poll from the firm Ipsos says that even if you care, 61 percent of Americans oppose U.S. intervention in Syria and 44 percent remain opposed even if Syria has used chemical weapons. President Obama clearly faces a big dilemma on what to do about the civil war in Syria. In a few minutes, we'll hear two Syrian perspectives on a possible U.S. intervention. First, though, we turn to the concern that Syria's conflict could expand to neighboring nations such as Lebanon. Some violence has already spilled across the border there, but now the leader of the Lebanon-based militant group Hezbollah is pledging his support for Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. The world's Middle East correspondent Matthew Bell has more. It's been an open secret that Hassan Nasrallah's militiamen are fighting on the Syrian government side in the civil war. Almost every day, there are new reports, often YouTube videos, of Hezbollah fighters coming home from Syrian body bags, where they are described to have been engaged in, as Hezbollah puts it, their jihadi duty. Matthew Levitt is with the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and he's the author of a forthcoming book on Hezbollah, the question is, why did Nasrallah make such a public declaration of support for Syria's government now? This has been going on for quite some time, but I think the pressure is mounting on, on Nasrallah, and he feels the need, mostly for domestic Lebanese purposes, to be able to catch up with the issue and try to explain that this is not, as he would like to put it, some type of offensive uh, campaign against someone, but a defensive campaign to protect fellow Shia, fellow Lebanese, Shia shrines. Nasrallah is trying to maintain the credibility of his Shiite militia as a Lebanese resistance movement against Israel, the U.S., and al-Qaeda. But Levitt says there's a risk here for Hezbollah because much of Lebanon, especially Sunni Muslims, have come to see Assad in Syria as a tyrant and a butcher. You have a situation now where some of the radical Sunnis in Syria aren't, and Lebanon aren't only calling for fighters to go and, and fight the regime in Syria, they're calling for fighting Hezbollah. You had a situation a couple of weeks ago where a bomb was found in Hezbollah's stronghold in southern Beirut. The bomb was allegedly planted by the Nusra Front, a group linked with al-Qaeda. That group is considered to be the most capable anti-government militia operating now in Syria. And that makes both Washington and its allies in Israel wary about what a post-Assad Syria could look like. When Israelis listened to Hassan Nasrallah's speech, former military intelligence official Shmuel Bar says 
they heard Hezbollah's leader delivering a warning from his masters in Tehran to the United States. Iran cannot, Iran cannot lose its strategic hold in Syria, so it's letting loose all of its cannons to try to deter anybody from intervening there. Barr says the warning from Hezbollah's leader this week to the United States was either stay out of Syria or face terrorist attacks against American assets and allies in the region. Middle East expert Thanasi Kambanis of the Century Foundation says it's not clear if Hezbollah has the capacity to back up such threats, but he says the civil war in Syria is already starting to spill over into Lebanon, And for Hezbollah, this is a fight to protect vital supply routes in Syria from being taken over by rebel forces. This is not like a Cold War game for them of a domino falling and and, and that they have to stop. This is a matter of life and death for them in terms of being able to be a viable fighting force. Uh, And that is why they can't afford to let any of the regime territory in Syria uh, fall out of its grasp if they can help it. Kambanis says Nasrallah's speech doesn't necessarily mean Lebanon is closer to being dragged into Syria's civil war, but Hezbollah's gambit is making it more and more difficult to avoid. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell. The West has, for the most part, stood on the sidelines of the Syrian conflict, but that could be changing, especially if there's mounting evidence that the Assad regime has used chemical weapons. U.S. intelligence agencies have concluded that poison gas has been used in Syria, but President Obama says it's not yet known who used it. Still, there are hints now that the United States is considering supplying the Syrian rebels with weapons. Amr al-Azam is a professor at Shawnee State University and a member of the Syrian opposition based here in the U.S. Tell us what the wisdom is of arming rebels at, at this point, Amr al-Azam. Well, I believe that there's uh, a final realization here that they need to change the balance of power on the ground in order to actually bring a change in the behavior of the regime vis-a-vis negotiations. Uh, The U.S. administration has consistently, from the very beginning, wanted a political transition, not a military toppling of the regime per se. And in order to do that, you have to persuade the regime to come to the table. The regime has basically up to now in its own calculus see no reason to uh, you know enter into serious negotiations that essentially by serious negotiations we hear we mean that entail the departure of the assads from uh, as part of these uh, negotiations and so by changing the balance of power on the ground by by providing the necessary assistance to the opposition this may essentially bring the regime to the point where it now realizes that the only way it can survive in some form or the other is to basically accept such a condition So the more and better guns the opposition has, uh, the the more likely the regime will be kind of scared to the table. I'd like to bring uh, Reem Turkmane in on the conversation. She's in London. She's a member of of a Syrian opposition group called Building the Syrian State. And when she's not campaigning on behalf of her country, she teaches astrophysics at Imperial College London. You don't think it's a good idea for the U.S. to give arms to the rebels in Syria. Tell us why. First of all, arming the opposition have been tried now for a year and a half, and it didn't work in bringing the regime any closer to the negotiation table. The Syrians are facing a state army here, and it's not a joke. It's a very, very strong army, and we have extremely cruel regime that is obviously you know, ready to use whatever it takes to conquer its opponents. So we're actually, by giving the 
rebels uh, more arm, and I'm sure it's not going to be up to the level of the Syrian army. We're just pushing them to their death, really. And we're increasing the violent confrontation, which so far have led to dramatic increase in the bloodshed and the destruction and is leading to the division of Syria and making us much further away from the political solution that is going to determine this conflict. But the conflict uh, it, it, has escalated and escalated, and now their uh, intelligence agencies believe that uh, poison gas has been used. I mean, what about the potential horrors of chemical warfare? I mean, th- yeah, then do you arm them? No, but uh, look, the regime have done much worse than these chemical attacks. I mean, you know, the uh, first of all, it's not confirmed yet that the regime have used them. But yeah, I mean, it could well use the chemical weapon. That, however, it's it has done much, much worse than that. Uh, but uh, I think rather than talking about the balance on the ground with, uh, with adding more a few guns, I would like to change the balance on the international community front, where the regime is still strong because it enjoys the support of Russia and China. And once the U.S. is able to compromise with them to reach one political solution, the regime will have no choice but to sit on the negotiation table and uh, comply to the solution. Well, Amr al-Azam, you take a different tack. And uh, President Obama spoke this week about reconsidering his options if it's proven incontrovertibly that the Assad government used chemical weapons. He he vaguely, Obama vaguely hinted at military action. What what could the West and the U.S. do militarily at this stage? And, And would it necessarily end the conflict? Right. Well, uh, let me just first of all make a, one point very clear. The the Assad regime did use the chemical weapons. We've had that confirmed by the British. We've had that confirmed by the Israelis. I, think, I believe even uh, Obama's own intelligence services pretty much have confirmed that. Um, and the question of who used it, well, obviously the regime used it. They are the ones who have access to it. They're the ones who have the means of delivery. You know, this is not – chemical weapons can't just be sprinkled around like you're sprinkling, uh, you know, candy frosting on, on, on a cake or something. It's, it, it, you need sophisticated equipment to do that. So I, I think it's very important to establish that, that, that fact. Now, wh- how the uh, Obama administration responds to this is, is another matter. There has to be some demonstration uh, uh, against the Assad regime as a response to the crossing of the red line. I suspect that we will see in, 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 in the next few weeks, maybe maybe around the time or just after the, the meeting with uh, Putin, we will probably see some sort of limited demonstration, maybe some uh, cruise missile strikes against bases that are uh, known to, to have chemical weapons, perhaps maybe firing against the, uh, the Scud launch pads. These are some of the options that are open to them. Do- it, Dr. Know, Turkmani, let me ask yes. you, I mean, what do you think about uh, limited airstrikes against key regime military targets? Uh, do you think the regime is going to watch, you know, while these strikes are launched against it? Of course, it's going to respond. So, no, I, I actually don't see it as a wise option. And I think it will give le- the regime more legitimacy in its attacks. It's going to say, hello, you know, I'm being attacked by foreign powers. Uh, this is an attack on Syria. He's going to play on all the Syrian pride and nationalism that we have to reinforce his strength. Uh, so, no, I don't believe in it. And I don't believe in what Dr. Amra have said, that this could be a game changer. The situation is extremely critical, extremely dangerous. It does not bear any more experimentation. The war ends either with a military victory, and this doesn't look at all possible right now, or with a political decision. A political decision has to be taken, just like they did in Lebanon, you know, when they ended the war with an international consensus around one political solution that included all the parties. So, Professor Al-Azam, I mean, Dr. Dr. Turkmani is basically saying that taking a side in the civil war will not necessarily bring the conflict to an end. What what do you say to that? Yes, 
Look, you know, just to remind Dr. Tokmani, it took 15 years for the Leb- of fighting for the Lebanese to finally come around the table. But this is here's what the I other thing. Yeah, well, let, let me finish. Let me no, no, let me finish my point. The the second thing there needs to, right now the regime has no incentive to come to the table to negotiate and to suggest somehow that the Russians can mm-hmm. force it to. I think is also naive. I don't think the Russians or the Iran or anybody else has that much leverage on the regime. The regime has in its own calculus. Every every morning the regime looks at its balance sheet and tallies up the figures and then turns around and says, oh, I'm still in the black, therefore I'm good. Amr al-Azam and uh, Reem Turkmani, what's really clear about this conversation is that even members of Syria's opposition don't agree on what to do. I mean, that doesn't really bode well for the conflict ending anytime soon, does it? We agree on the toppling of the regime, but we don't agree on how to do it. But isn't it telling that the the opposition doesn't know how how to proceed? Yes, that's true. That's absolutely true, because there is an absence of a very clear strategy from everybody. Not even the U.S. has a very clear strategy uh, on this game. And I think we only have to learn from the history of the region. It's true that the Lebanese civil war lasted for 15 years, and this is exactly why we have to end the hearing one right now. Because unlike Lebanon, Syria is not surrounded by one strong country, and therefore this war has a very strong potential to spread and destabilize the whole region, but also learning from Lebanon, the war ended with a political decision around the negotiation table that enjoyed international consensus. And this is going to be the end of the conflict in Syria, and it has to end soon. Reem Turkmani belongs to the Syrian opposition group Building the Syrian State, and Amr al-Azam is a member of the Syrian opposition based here in the United States. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. And one final note on the Syrian conflict and the dangers facing those who cover it. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, 28 reporters were killed there last year, and at least 21 were abducted by various factions in the conflict. Several remain missing, including American freelancers Austin Tice and James Foley. Charlie Sennett is a co-founder of Global Post, the online news site Foley was working with when he went missing last November. Sennett calls Syria a uniquely dangerous place. Because the front lines are constantly shifting and collapsing, you end up with um, journalists doing their best to cross into a conflict where, where they can't predict how they can keep themselves safe. Another problem, Senate says, is that journalists are being treated as part of the conflict, not as neutral observers. Any illusion about that, whether it was, whether it was one we should have had or not, is completely stripped away in Syria and has been gradually being stripped away for so long, really since Danny Pearl right after 9-11. Pearl was the Wall Street Journal correspondent who was kidnapped and killed in Pakistan in 2002, where he'd been investigating the 9-11 attacks. This is The World on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Yesterday, we learned that three friends of accused Boston Marathon bomber Jokart Sarnayev may have assisted him after the attack by disposing of evidence and lying to authorities. If the young men are found guilty, they face five to eight years in prison. Another name has surfaced in connection to the marathon bombing. William Plotnikov was a Russian-Canadian. He converted to Islam and joined an Islamist insurgency in the Russian Republic of Dagestan. 
Plotnikov was killed there by Russian security forces. Now, there have been reports in the media that Plotnikov may have been in contact with deceased Boston Marathon bombing suspect Tamerlan Tsarnaev. Stuart Bell is covering the story for the National Post. He joins us on the line from Toronto. So, Stuart, what is the connection between William Plotnikov and Tamerlan Tsarnaev, if there is any? The connection is that, uh, I mean, one, they both have extremely similar trajectories. Both were amateur boxers, uh, immigrants from that part of the world, who apparently became radicalized very quickly and then went off to that part of the world, to Dagestan, to pursue that. William Plotnikov was actually detained by the Russian security forces in early 2011, and uh, during questioning with the Russian FSB security agency, he reportedly named Sarnayev as one of his online contacts. Do you know, Stuart, if they were ever in Dagestan at the same time, and did they ever meet in Dagestan or anywhere else? Yeah, well, that's another interesting thing about this story is that they were actually in Dagestan at the same time. William Plotnikov went to Dagestan for the second time in late 2011 and joined the uh, the rebels in the forests of eastern Dagestan. And he was there throughout the first half of 2012 until July when he was killed uh, in a, a shootout with the Russian security forces. Tamerlan Tsarnaev went to Dagestan in uh, January of 2012, was there until July, and actually left and returned to the United States just a few days after William Plotnikov was killed. And there's been some suggestion, I haven't found evidence of this myself, but some suggestion that he may have been spooked by the killing of Plotnikov. Do, do you know why William Plotnikov was killed in this raid? Well, he was killed because he was uh, living in the mountains uh, with a group of uh, fighters who were part of this North Caucasus movement that's trying to impose an Islamist regime in southern Russia. And they had been doing various uh, attacks on, especially on Russian forces. There's a videotape that we have on our website that shows the kind of mentality they had. They were talking about jihad and about killing non-believers and warning, threatening of attacks against the Russian forces. And the Russians eventually surrounded this compound where they were living and uh, killed all of those. There were seven of them inside the compound. And and, uh, William Plotnikov, the Canadian, was shot in the head during that, that shootout. We'll link to that video we're just talking about at theworld.org. Let me ask you a little more about that. So that video was filmed shortly before William Plotnikov was killed. Is that what you're saying? The father, when his son was killed, went to Dagestan to try and figure out what had happened and uh, to also receive William's body and to arrange for burial. When he did that, when he was inquiring around about his son, he went to the village where he'd been killed, and um, he was given some photographs of his son and also a video that had been found when he was killed. William had shot this video, I think probably with his cell phone camera. He narrates it, and he speaks the the different rebels that are inside this bunker, and then he turns the the camera on himself and begins to espouse very, very radical views about killing non-believers and all. It's very very much like the Al-Qaeda-type narrative. And I remember watching that video uh, with the father, and he was just... You could see his face. He was just astounded. And he, he said to me, you know, that's not my son. I, don't, I, I can't believe that my son is saying these things. Uh, I can't believe how he's changed. 
Stuart Bell, a reporter with Canada's National Post newspaper, speaking with us from his newsroom in Toronto. Stuart, thanks for your time. Thank you. Garment workers in Bangladesh returned to work today for the first time since that deadly garment factory disaster there last week. The death toll from the tragedy is now well over 400. There's a lot of finger-pointing going on in Bangladesh, but also here, aimed at all the clothing retailers that have products manufactured in factories like the one that collapsed. And there's hand-wringing among consumers everywhere who worry that they too are responsible for buying those cheaply made clothes. All those issues are showing up in political cartoons, especially those drawn by Bangladeshi cartoonists. The world's Carol Hills is with me. And, Carol, let's remind listeners first that all the cartoons you're going to tell us about now can be seen at theworld.org. Now, you spoke with a cartoonist today in Dhaka in Bangladesh. Who did you speak with? I spoke with Syed Rashad Imam Tanmoy. He just goes by Tanmoy in his cartoons. He visited the site the second night with a colleague, and the first thing he was struck with, and it turned out to be his first cartoon about this, was the fact that the official emergency responders, the Bangladeshi fire and police, they were all there, but the people actually going into the collapsed building to pull out survivors and or dead bodies were regular Bangladeshis, just regular citizens or relatives of those who were in the building. He says it's since changed, but that really, really bothered him. Right. Shame mounts upon shame. So what did Tanmoy have to say about how Bangladeshis have reacted to this tragedy? He says it's brought out the worst and the best. Let's start with the worst. He said people have tried to gain political capital. The home minister of Bangladesh, he actually said that it may have been members of the opposition party, supporters of the opposition party who shook the pillars, somehow shook the building and caused this. I mean, it's complete nonsense. But people are trying to get political capital out of it. In terms of the best, he said every Bangladeshi he knows, from rich to poor, have tried to help. His family, his colleagues, all sorts of people on the street, everyone is there. He said he saw a very old, very poor man who just had like a box of cookies and some water brought to the site. It's really, really affected everyone. And he said that's a good thing. And he really feels like this could be a moment for Bangladesh where conditions in the factories start to change. Of course, drawing about this in cartoons is going to bring out some pretty dark humor. How have uh, Tanmoy's readers been reacting to his cartoons? You know, he's gotten a lot of flack from his readers, and he compared notes with other cartoonists, and they're getting the same thing. And a lot of it is about, you can't say this about Bangladesh, you're giving us a bad name. And he's saying, that's not the point. The point is to draw attention to this. He mentioned another cartoon by a female Bangladeshi cartoonist that got a lot of flack. And that one, it's in the slideshow, and it's a close-up of a pair of blue jeans. And then there's a tag on it, it says, made in Bangladesh, the word price. And next to the word price, there's spattered blood. He also said that he's concerned that all the attention is on the owner of the factory building, that he's been portrayed as the villain. And he said that's a misreading of this issue. He said there's a whole line of people involved in approving land purchases, approving building designs. He said there's a lot of culpability, and it's too easy to focus on just this owner. Some powerful cartoons from Bangladesh and beyond. Carol's put together a slideshow of those cartoons about the garment factory disaster, including those by Tanmoy, the Bangladeshi she spoke with earlier today. You can see that at theworld.org. Carol, thank you. Thanks, Marco. Next on the agenda, World News Headlines. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International.
I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Greeks who have left their troubled nation are saddened by the political violence back home. Seeing that happening to your homeland is, is uh, extreme. I mean, you can't really... It's like seeing you know, the Acropolis being bombed by flying saucers or something. You know, it's completely far out. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. An American citizen was sentenced today by North Korea to 15 years of hard labor. Kenneth Bay, a tour operator from Washington State, was arrested in North Korea last November. He was charged with trying to overthrow the government in Pyongyang. If the past is any guide, North Korean leaders are hoping the sentencing will trigger a high-profile U.S. mission to negotiate his release. In 2010, former President Jimmy Carter trekked to Pyongyang to win the release of a Christian activist. A year earlier, former President Bill Clinton made the trip to win the release of two American journalists. For former U.S. diplomat Jeffrey Bader, the current situation is all too familiar. Uh, Jeffrey Bader, you were an Obama advisor. When the decision was made to send President Clinton to win the release of those journalists, Laura Ling and Una Lee, they were detained. What is the calculus for diplomats in this sort of situation? I think the general rule of thumb should be that we should not be sending U.S. government emissaries to North Korea or other countries that essentially are taking people hostage for political purposes. It's not a game that we should be playing. How is that decision made, though? I mean, in the case of President Clinton going to get the release of Laura Ling and Una Lee, how did that work? That was an exceptional case uh, where we felt, given its, its prominence, given the attention that was being paid to it, that it was necessary to do something to try to get the journalists released. I will say that during those discussions, I was in the National Security Council at the time, and I did not favor President Clinton going. My concern was precisely that it would encourage the North Koreans to continue taking hostages rather than solve the problem once and for all time. Can you unpack that for us? I mean, who's lobbying for which option in this case, and what are the considerations on each side? In this case, I suspect that no one is lobbying for an option to send a high-level U.S. visitor. We can't stop such people from undertaking such missions, but the U.S. government can't be in the business of, in essence, negotiating hostage releases. Aren't there voices in the room going, you know, these are American citizens in a place that doesn't like the U.S.? Everyone in the room is deeply concerned about the fate of American citizens there. That's why we put out a travel warning by the State Department some years ago telling all American citizens don't go to North Korea. People need to understand that, that in effect, they're like crossing Times Square at rush hour with a blindfold on when they go to North Korea. This is a place where this can happen. So can the White House just let Kenneth Bay sit there? Can they stop short of sending a high-level delegation? I see no advantage of sending a high-level delegation. Uh, You're just encouraging North Korean bad behavior. You're encouraging them to think that their behavior these last few months is acceptable. Um, There are big stakes involved in uh, the messaging that we send to North Korea about how we respond to uncivilized, provocative behavior. They'll just keep doing it over and over again if we do it this time. Jeffrey Bader, before I let you go, I want to shift gears radically here and just test your Korea IQ. Can you tell us what a choco pie is? (laughs) You got me. I have a low Korea IQ. 
Jeffrey Bader of the Brookings Institution. He also served in the Obama White House. Now, the reason I asked him about choco pies, I spotted this in the British paper, The Guardian. A choco pie is South Korea's equivalent of a moon pie, cookie with a marshmallow covered in a film of bad chocolate. They're made by the South Korean food giant Lottie, and yet they become legendary in the hermit kingdom, too. How? Well, the answer runs through the Kaesong Industrial Complex. It's been in the news lately. The Kaesong factory sits near the DMZ between North and South Korea. There are about 50,000 North Korean workers there, managed by 800 staffers from South Korea. The managers can't offer cash bonuses to their North Korean workers, too capitalistic, deems the North. So for workers who are especially productive, managers have come up with an informal reward system. They offer instant noodles or instant coffee. But the gold standard incentive is choco pies. The workers who can score these treats can quietly resell them in the North for three to four times the original price. Now, there's a Korean shop, the Lottie Market, near my house in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I do a lot of shopping. So I went there to remind myself what the draw of choco pies is. All right. Twelve individually wrapped chocolate-coated pie. That's what we want. Poke Chen is the woman at the counter. I'm from South Korea. So you, you said you're from a village out in South Korea, yeah. country girl. Yeah, I'm country so, girl. But do they, <laughs> do they have choco pies in, in your village? Of yeah. course. Originally from my country, choco pie, everywhere, every store. Very popular? Yeah. Children, grown-ups, everybody? Yeah, they like it. <laughs> A nice price too, you know. Yeah. This one's four ninety nine. This one two ninety nine. Poke Chen didn't know about the North Korean love of choco pies. One expert explains in the Guardian article: choco pies are an important mind-changing instrument for North Koreans. They're a reminder for North Koreans that the South is more prosperous, even though Pyongyang has tried to tell its citizens otherwise. Now, North Korea's other neighbor, China is at an economic crossroads. Economic growth is slowing, wages are rising, and the population is aging. China's new leaders say they want economic reform. But the Communist Party can't quite let go of state-owned enterprises, and many experts say it's dragging China down. In part four of our series, Past Due, the world's Mary Kay Magsad reports from Beijing. Taxi driver Liu Shouling is doing her part for the Chinese economy. She puts in 12 hours a day, picking up passengers and taking them where they want to go. She likes this better than her last job as a checkout clerk. More freedom, she says. There's just one thing. The smog is getting to her. I can feel it. I never coughed before. I didn't feel it in the past. But a few days before the Spring Festival, when Beijing has the uh, smog weather every day, I felt itchy in my throat. It definitely has something to do with the pollution here. A couple of months back, the chairman of Sinopec, one of China's big oil refining state enterprises, was quoted in the state-run wire service Xinhua as saying that most gasoline in China is refined to a lower standard than people realized, causing more pollution. Taxi driver Liu says she's not happy to hear that. Sinopec later denied that its chairman, Fu Changyu, said all that about refining standards. But he did say this in March to Shanghai's Dragon TV. 
He said, we need to raise the national standard of fuel quality. No matter how high the cost, there should be no excuse. State enterprises are supposed to help people have better lives. People shouldn't be made victims because we're looking at the bottom line. All very laudable. But many Chinese are skeptical that state enterprises really have their best interests at heart. State enterprises may have started out decades back with the mission of serving the people, but they've developed a flair for serving themselves. At the National People's Congress in March, state enterprise execs mingled with political leaders and entrepreneurs. Eighty-three of the delegates are dollar billionaires in a country where resentment about the concentration of wealth among party elites is growing. China's new leaders are trying to dial it down. New Premier Li Keqiang touched on it at a news conference winding up the annual legislative session. We need to win the trust of the people and bring benefits to them by practicing frugality in government affairs. And you could see some signs of that. For a start, there were none of the usual gaudy floral arrangements up front. And... Spending on official hospitality, overseas trips for official business, and the purchase of official vehicles will decrease, not increase. So some shark's fin soup restaurants are hurting, and liquor stores. But how does this address the deeper problem, that China's income gap is now one of the biggest in the world, that party elites and their friends have amassed great fortunes, in part because of the favored position of state enterprises? Nearly all of the 40 mainland Chinese companies on the Fortune 500 list are owned by the government. But a report by the private Chinese economic research group Unirol found that for every dollar of investment, private companies in the industrial sector earn almost 50 percent more than their state enterprise counterparts. Take away the subsidies and free land that state enterprises get, and their real return dips into negative numbers. Jim McGregor is a Beijing-based business consultant with 20 years' experience in China. To give these companies their due, without state planning, state banks, you would never have the infrastructure that we have today in China. The problem is that day has now run out because they add zero growth. It's private businesses that add growth and jobs and innovation to China's economy. Just ask multimillionaire entrepreneur Zhao Youshan, a gruff, plain-talking 63-year-old. Zhao, who was a soldier and then a cop in his youth, says he started China's first private gas station in his hometown of Harbin, not far from Russia. That was in the late 1980s when, he says, it was easy starting a private business. But he says... That started to change in the late 1990s. That was when the government let thousands of money-losing state enterprises go bankrupt. Some 50 million workers lost their jobs. The central government took direct control of 121 state enterprises in key strategic sectors, including oil and gas, and let many of them establish monopolies. Zhao Yoshan now heads an association of private businesses in the oil and gas industry. And he says these monopolies weren't what former leader Deng Xiaoping had in mind when he started economic reform more than 30 years ago. He says 
Deng said resources should be shared fairly and enterprises treated equally. But China's state enterprises are the only ones allowed to import crude oil, and they don't always make it available to private refineries. Zhao says there are additional bureaucratic hoops that private companies have to jump through, like getting a stamp of approval from politically connected agents who know little or nothing about the industry. He sees this as a form of corruption, since their fees can be as high as half the value of a project or even higher. Premier Li Keqiang promised sweeping reforms meant to help the private sector. The reform is about curbing government power. It would require real sacrifice, and this would be painful. Then we are determined to make that sacrifice. Tell that to vested interest in China that don't like pain, like families of top leaders who have made fortunes by working a system that favors them. Still, a World Bank report that Premier Li himself commissioned says if China wants sustainable growth, it has to change both the structure of its economy and who it benefits. Yukon Huang is the former World Bank country director in China. Now, some people say that it's just a question of level playing field between state enterprises and private enterprises. Actually, as an economist, it's not true. You can never get a level playing field because the private enterprise will not expand or do something knowing that there's a state enterprise which is potentially protected. To me, it's actually the state getting out of certain kinds of activities and basically saying, I will not be involved in those areas. I will actually get out. Which is easier said than done. State enterprise bosses are often senior party cadre who may outrank the government officials trying to regulate them. Qijing Mei heads the Economic Forecasting Department in the government's State Information Center. She says, in the past, state enterprises haven't had to send much of their profits to the government. So, senior executives have gained enormous wealth, and corruption has become a serious problem. The private entrepreneur, Zhao, couldn't agree more. He says... If the government doesn't get serious about cracking down on corruption, it will lose popular support. The people will no longer listen to them. People will think, if you bribe, then I'll bribe too. It's every man for himself. That's a scenario China's new leaders are desperate to avoid. They say cracking down on corruption is a top priority. But when four activists recently said to top leaders, great, start by declaring your own assets, the activists were promptly detained. What the government has done is order state enterprises to share at least a little more of the wealth in the form of higher dividends. But there's resistance there, too. Change comes slowly in a system where the spoils have long gone to the powerful and where there's neither real rule of law nor enough checks and balances on power. Economist Yukon Huang says political reform is long past due. He says... Think of China's economy as a big, round Chinese dining table with one central pillar. Think of the pillar as the party, the government, the state-owned enterprises, and the state banks, all working together to support and expand the tabletop, the economy itself. But a Chinese dining table, once it gets too big, with one pillar collapses. So the real struggle in China is to move to a Western dining table, where the key players become different legs that can hold up a much bigger table, Different legs. That would mean separating the party, the government, the state banks, and state enterprises, 
and the courts. And that would mean a loss of control, something the party's been none too keen on. For now, its approach is to keep the wobbly Chinese table, but try to improve the service. It'll be quite a balancing act to carry off. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. People in China are hungry for another kind of reform, political reform, but it's a no-go area for China's leaders. That's tomorrow in the final part of our series, China Past Due, and can find more of the series at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Greece is still mired in financial misery. The unemployment rate stands at 27 percent. For those under 25, it's much worse. Nearly 60 percent are out of work, if you can believe that. So many are leaving the country to seek employment. Now an online effort has been launched to document this new wave of Greek emigration. The world's Clark Boyd reports. Nicholas Stambulopoulos left Greece in October of 2009, just before the economic crisis began in earnest. I could see it coming. I mean, I could see that something is really seriously wrong with this country. So I decided to leave and I moved to the Netherlands. I'm still trying to adapt to this new reality. You know, let's face it, I can't really stand the weather here. Stambulopoulos settled in Amsterdam. Thousands of Greeks have done something similar in the past few years, and Stambulopoulos, a filmmaker, wanted to capture their diaspora stories. But that meant getting Greeks to face up to the problems back home. There is a tendency that we hide things under the carpet and keep talking about, uh, you know, how beautiful Greece is, which is beautiful, by the way, avoiding to mention that there are problems. People are living, and people are living en masse. At first, Stambulopoulos envisioned doing a full-length documentary on the experiences of this new wave of Greeks living and working abroad. But then he realized that project would be too big for one person or one production team. So he decided to open it up to anyone through a website called New Diaspora. NewDiaspora.com is a platform that enables Greek people around the world to share their own stories, whether that's in video or texts or uh, uh, photos or anything. In my country, in Greece, something really important is happening, and I would like to be able to have a say. Matina Magu decided to volunteer her time and skills to the New Diaspora Project. She lived and worked outside of Greece for years, in Brussels and later in Spain. Last year, she decided, in the worst of the crisis, to move back home. Think about it for a second. Spain to Greece. Talk about frying pan into the fire. It felt weird at the beginning. You feel a bit... um different than the others, but at the same time, you bring a different kind of energy and you're not stuck into the misery that uh, sometimes prevails among Greek people, let's say, right now. Megu admits she's got it good. Right now, she's able to live in Greece, but earn her money as an events planner for events outside of Greece. She knows many aren't so lucky and that thousands of bright, capable kids are leaving Greece, and those kids can get a bad rap back home. There are many people that are criticizing the ones that are leaving, you know, but I don't believe that you're less Greek when you decide to move out of Greece. I don't believe that the ones that are leaving are taking out Greece from their heart. You can see these struggles in the stories that have already been posted at New Diaspora. Elia, a Greek living in Britain, writes, We who live outside of Greece are blamed for running away, but we have other challenges to fight being away from our families, being treated as immigrants, and always being the foreigners that take jobs from the locals. Nicholas Stambulopoulos hopes that New Diaspora can help people outside of Greece empathize, 
but more importantly, he says, he hopes it will spark a conversation among those Greeks who have left. The whole idea is that we start talking about who we are and redefine an identity. It won't be an easy discussion. Today in Athens, a lawmaker from the far-right Golden Dawn Party allegedly tried to punch the city's mayor. The Golden Dawn politician reportedly missed and ended up punching a 12-year-old girl instead. Stambulopoulos says what's going on back in Greece is, in a word, scary. For people who have migrated to other countries and have felt even a tiny bit of racism, uh, seeing that happening to your homeland is, is uh, extreme. I mean, you can't really, it's like seeing you know, the Acropolis being bombed by flying saucers or something. You know, it's completely far out. And it's spreading, Stambulopoulos says. The economic crisis, he notes, is now affecting places like the Netherlands and Germany. An anti-immigrant feeling, he says, is coming right along with it. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. You can see some of those new diaspora stories at theworld.org, including the tale of a Greek jazz singer trying to earn a living in Holland. Finally today, we wanted to remember a singer, a former superstar in Bollywood. Shamshad Begum died last week at the age of 94 in Mumbai. The world's Adeline Sear has this appreciation. Shamshad Begum was one of the earliest singers of Bollywood films, becoming a superstar during the golden age of Indian cinema, the 1940s and 50s. Siddharth Patia is a journalist and author of several books on Indian cinema in Mumbai. He says Bigum's role was to synchronize her voice to the many pretty faces in Bollywood who could dance but not sing, or at least not sing as she could. In Indian cinema, the songs are usually sung by the singer who is not on the screen. And in fact, Begum never appeared on a movie screen. She came from a conservative Muslim family, and even though at the time on-screen Muslim actresses were a big deal, Begum's father wouldn't let her join their ranks. And yet she would become a voice Indian audiences became very familiar with from the time she was discovered by a music agent at age 13. Shamshad Begum's voice was a very rich and what was called an open voice. Her voice had tremendous throw. It is said that she stood somewhat further from the microphone because she threw her voice very effectively. One of her most famous songs came from a thriller called C.I.D., Think CSI Mumbai, 1956, which we're hearing now. The actress on the screen is trying to prevent a bad guy from discovering someone hiding in her house. And uh, she has to seduce this bad guy so that he does not go into the room where this man is hiding. And that song is done in a very playful, almost seductive way which Shamshad Begum was very well known for. It's a dance on the screen. She fits the role and she fits the mood of the song really well. When Begum died last week, journalist Siddharth Bhatia says there was an outpouring of affectionate remembrance. Bhatia says that was a surprise because she had not been heard since the 1970s. So you would think that the younger generation would know nothing about her. But thanks to YouTube and so much more on television, 
She's quite popular. Many of her songs have been remixed and have become dance numbers. So when she died, there was tremendous coverage in the newspapers and on television. A fitting tribute to a major film star who was never on screen. For the world, I'm Adeline Sear. The voice of Shamshad Begum concludes our program today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for joining us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.